Hey everybody, this is Josh Peterson, your host of This Ocean Life. Before we get going today, I just want to wish everybody the best in health and wellness it can be during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. If you're looking for things to do, like I am uh, and my family, and you want to get better at holding your breath, we hear a lot about free diving and spearfishing, etc. on the show, go to immersionfreediving.com. Ted Hardy, he was a past guest, episode number 55, has self-paced, online, video-based breath hold training. It's cheap, it's fun, it's meditative, it's therapeutic when you lay down and you work through the breathing exercises. I've loved it, I've been doing it uh, the last few days, already seeing an extension to my breath hold. So, hope you guys are staying well, check it out, kill some hours. So the idea of our strategy is if you can provide a reason and a way for people to not fish sharks, but still financially like feasible and all the rest of it, then they won't. Like there's no like big pool for sharks. It's, just, it's, it's literally just a means to an end. That's Francesca Trotman describing the basis of her work in Mozambique to help local communities replace shark fishing with other viable alternatives. This and much more from this amazing woman of the water today on the Social Life Podcast with me, Josh Peterson. Francesca Trotman has dedicated her life to preserving the marine life of Mozambique. As a British scholar and marine biologist, Francesca formed a deep connection to the ocean animals in this part of Africa during her university fieldwork and has since planted roots in the country, working with local governments and communities on a number of fronts to help preserve their ocean waters. From setting up marine protected areas to engaging on numerous scientific studies, educating local school children and more, Francesca's nonprofit foundation, Love the Oceans is her legacy for protecting the ocean and that area of the African continent. Today we hear her story filled with inspiration, compassion, and dedication to doing something great for the ocean and another culture outside of her own. Enjoy. So Francesca, you're in a spot that is really fascinating to me, me having like zero, <laughs> zero experience in the ocean around Africa which is a giant place, or most specifically Mozambique. I think I may have talked to one person who's even been out there, but I've heard it's insane. So if you would, just start by just describing kind of the waters around Mozambique, specifically where you are located uh, out there. Um, so we're really lucky. We're in a very beautiful place. Um, so I, I live in Jangamo, uh, in Ginjata Bay in Jangamo, um, which is a very rural area um which is nice it's it's <laughs> stark contrast to the uk um and i spend my <laughs> time about split 50 50 so um it feels like i live two completely different lives um but the, <laughs> you pretty much do <laughs> yeah well exactly um and this area is so like uh it's very rural and very poverty stricken um but the waters are beautiful so and the people are lovely and beautiful as well. So um, we've got obviously Indian Ocean, um, so nice warm water. Um, our kind of like flagship species of the area are humpback whales, whale sharks, uh, manta rays and dolphins. Um, so we're very lucky. We've got a lot of really cool megafauna on our doorstep too. Um, and that's what I was doing just before the um, just before we started recording this podcast was going out because we've been sponsored some paddle boards um, and uh, they're, they're obviously non-motorized which means we can get closer to wildlife because um, the wildlife won't get scared 
Um, so it's a method of data collection for us. Uh, so I've got to get some practice in um, and get our community outreach manager out on the board as well, because he's helping with data collection at the moment, given the current uh, lockdown around the world. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And you guys are, yeah, like you said, super rich waters with big megafauna, charismatic megafauna, the stuff we love to take pictures of and see. And then you have what I was like tripping out on because I have this real obsession with manta rays, even though I've never dove with one. It's like my thing. And you have manta reef right there. And you guys look, I mean, talk about that. Like there's this really interesting place where you get multiple species of mantas all interacting together. And it just sounds like it's just like a wonderland. Yeah, um, Manta Reef isn't as good as it used to be. Um, there's been a lot of overfishing and, well, we're not entirely sure why the mantas have left Manta Reef. Um, we have a theory that we're working on at the moment and um, researching uh, because mantas aggregate in areas where there are cleaning stations or food. And the, and the reason that they kind of gather on Manta Reef is because of cleaning stations. And cleaning stations are basically like plateaus of reef um, where loads of, it's usually like soft coral and loads of um, fish like wrasse and um, butterfly fish all live in that and those fish actually clean the mantas so they can spend like eight hours a day being cleaned um, and there are quite a few cleaning stations like five on this reef um, so the mantas would come in and hover and um, be cleaned by these wrasse um, which is really amazing but what we think has happened over the years because manta reef is quite famous um, is that divers have swum through those uh, cleaning stations without realising that they're cleaning stations when the manta rays aren't in there and have um, scared off the fish. So the cleaning stations, um, if the fish leaves, the coral dies and so the cleaning station is no more. So mm. we think that that might have been happening in the area, but we're not sure. So that's one of our research areas that we're working on at the moment. Um, we know that the manta rays are still very much in Mozambique and we do see them on dives. It's just less common than it was before, it, like um, like five, ten years ago. It was like 10 mantas dive and you pretty much guaranteed it was odd for you not to see a manta. And now wow. it's kind of switched switched around and it's more rare to see a manta than it is not to. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like the the effects, side effects of ecotourism, which sounds so great from the outside in of people, you know, paying the local economy to come interact with the natural beauty underwater it's all good but then like here's these a potential side effect of that you know and there's probably others too and so you guys are kind of seeing this firsthand and trying to figure out if there is some impact from divers you know co congregating frequently on this certain part of the reef yeah exactly part of our work is in uh, responsible tourism uh, so we do like workshops with the lodges in the area and things like that and invite tourists to come to talks um, by marine biologists but um it is just working out because we we have the data from the fisheries in the area so we know that the manta rays aren't being fished uh, at least not by local um fishermen in this area uh, there are um, industrial vessels that go by on the horizon but we don't have access to them so we don't know what they're catching um, mm. but we think it, it, it probably is something to do with the fishing pressure industrially, but also it will be a combination of that with, um, irresponsible tourism. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So what else are you, do you see frequently? I mean, what, what sharks, cause a, give, a big chunk of what you guys do with love the oceans is you're focusing on shark research as well. So what kind of shark species are you, you know, commonly seeing out there? So we have a lot of sharks in our area. Um, the kind of in situ stuff that we look at mostly with sharks are whale sharks um, because uh, they're quite easy to collect data on. We collect the um, photos of the left-hand side of the whale shark, left-hand side just because that's our database. But um, 
the spot formation between the pectoral fin and the gill slits of of whale sharks are unique to each whale shark. Um, so we basically uh, work on a database with another organization um, and uh, you can identify that individual whale shark and then look at where else that individual has turned up around the world. Um, usually it's kind of just along the eastern African coastline, but still. Um, and then we also do shark fisheries research. There's a big shark fin trade in Mozambique. So unfortunately, that's a, working with a lot of dead sharks rather than anything living. But we do see a lot of um, tiger sharks and scalloped hammerheads, bull sharks. Those are probably the most common in the catches. Yeah. And then what about just general diving? I mean, are you are you are you getting harassed at all? Are there any spots where you're diving frequently? Like you have dive sites that you're you know you go back to recurringly to to do some research and you see like. I don't know, the bull sharks, tiger sharks, anything that's out there that's kind of concerning at times for you guys in the water? Um, not so much. Unfortunately, we don't yeah. have that many sharks on dives as much as we would mm. like. Um, the sharks that we do have are generally just small reef sharks, um, yeah. and they're very skittish. So you'll kind of see them, and then by the time you pointed one out to your buddy, they will have <laughs> moved off already. <laughs> yeah. And you'll be left yeah. going, I promise I saw it. And everyone's like, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we don't have that quite as much. Um, during whale season, June to November, that, like, the whales are everywhere. So that's our most common megafauna species by a long shot. Um, and we do research on that, on uh, the vocalizations and on the ID again. But with whales, it's um, the fluke, the tail fluke, a uh, photo mm -hmm. of that when it's out of the water. So when they pull their fin out of the water, um, taking a photo of that, you can identify each individual whale as well. Um, so we do research on that too. Um, I think my favorite, like I started the organization for the sharks, but actually I like, I still really love sharks and everything and they're probably still my favorite, but humpback whales are a very close second for me. Hmm. Why is that? So sharks, I love them, but they're not the cleverest animals on the planet. <laughs> um, uh, so they, like, if you swim with a whale shark, they're very predictable in their behavior, so long as, obviously, you don't invade their privacy and um, they're not disturbed in any way. But they'll pretty much just um, continue doing what they're doing. Like, in our area, there's less feeding and it's more just kind of moving around. Um, and they're all juvenile males, so they're just kind of swimming along in a straight line and they don't really like switch yeah. behavior up a lot um but humpback whales are very unpredictable and they have uh, so many different types of surface behavior that they like to exhibit they're mammals so they uh, are maternal so it's a lot of mother and calf pairs that we have here we also have mating pods um which are really exciting to watch um they're vocal as well so you can hear them underwater uh on dives um yeah. which is obviously incredible and just like it's so with our research, we've noticed a direct correlation, which is quite well known around the world between like noise creation and humpback whale behavior. Um, so last year, I remember taking out a group of tourists. It was a boat of like, it was packed. It was like a boat of 14 people, which we have small ribs. So that's a very busy boat. Um, and so we're at full capacity and I was the marine biologist on board and um, we'd kind of the whole season we've been looking at kind of human whale interaction and and the engine noise and what that does because we work with the World Cetacean Alliance, um, which has strict guidelines on like its 300 meter caution zone, 100 meter exclusion zone, all of that kind of stuff. And we'd kind of been experimenting with that to see if we turned our engine off before the 100 meter exclusion zone, if the whales would come to us. And we'd generally been finding that, yes, they would. 
um, mm. the whales would actually change their direction and come to us if we turn the engine off because they're curious, but the engine noise is too scary for them to do that beforehand. Um, so I took this boat out and um, <laughs> I literally turned the engine of the boat off and I was like, and usually when we turn the engine of the boat off, the whales breach. And then literally as the word breach left my mouth, <laughs> this massive whale breached right <laughs> inside of the boat and soaked all the tourists. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's like we researched them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they must have loved that. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very cool. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. And so the the uh, vocalization thing is really interesting too. And um, I mean, for a lot of different reasons, I've read so much about it. But uh, I also read something, I think it was somebody's using like, um, I don't know if it's like machine learning or AI or something to, to try to tease apart, I'm not sure which whale species vocalizations into like, you know, common patterns and words and everything. But for what you guys are doing, uh, I mean, you're, you're recording vocalizations of humpback whales and then and then what are you doing you're so you're trying to kind of correlate those to like service behavior or just general behavior yeah so it's a mix um at the moment we've been working on a paper with um and how oh, sorry just bit my own tongue um, with, um <laughs> we've been working on a paper with ngos from uh i think it's five different countries uh, around southern africa um, and that's basically looking at, um, so there's a few different things you can look at with um, whale song. So uh, whale song is the males, um, the females don't sing. So when you hear all the like yoga and sleep CDs, that's all the oh, males. Wow. Um, and basically uh, when you compare, so each pod of whales has their own song. Um, and when a pod passes another pod, they'll exchange part of their song with that other pod and it's it's like one of the most basic forms of cultural transmission um in the animal kingdom but basically you can see which pods have come into contact with each other through the song composition um wow. so we have hydrophones which we record the songs on and then you break that down um i don't actually do that so i don't know the ins and outs of it but i can tell you roughly what happens because i've seen people do it from standing over their <laughs> shoulder um, but basically it's um a piece of software that you then can sort the frequencies um and like filter the frequencies out so you can look at um the whole song and then it breaks into themes and then that breaks down again uh, and eventually you get into like phrases um and then you can compare songs of different pods uh and look at what that means in terms of migration patterns and where those pods have originated from and where they've ended up which is pretty cool uh you can also look at uh, well, not so much with humpback whales, but with dolphins. By recording, <clears throat> by recording dolphins, you can actually look at habitat use as well, because dolphins oh. make different noises um, depending on what activity they're doing. So mm. for us, like our mission as an organisation is to establish a marine protected area. Um, so for us, that kind of information is useful because when we propose legislation to the government, we can say like, oh, it's important because we know that this area is being used for x y and z by the dolphins so if we can hear them foraging or mating or anything like that then um it's another thing to be able to look at as well which is really interesting and then with the humpback whales as well we're linking it to surface behavior um so it's generally thought around the world that vocalizations are to do well the song is to do with mating and courtship because it's only the males that sing um and the um mating is down to female selection um, but there's no like absolutely 
it's not like completely universally accepted. So we're still looking at what vocalizations are being made, what those noises are, and then what's the corresponding surface behavior that we're witnessing. But there's one huge limitation to that study at the moment, which we're trying to mitigate, um, which is we just have too many whales, um, (laughs) which is a ridiculous problem to have. (laughs) Um, But um, when we put the hydrophone in the water, we're recording the song of quite a few different whales. And obviously, if there's one whale breaching, I don't know, 200 meters from you, you don't necessarily know that what you're recording on the hydrophone is actually that individual. Um, so there's a few different things that we're working through in that study, but it's still, yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, no, that's all so cool. So you're talking about so many different types of research efforts that you and your group are part of now tie that all back into love the oceans, which is your nonprofit organization that you founded with, you know, some others. So talk about that now, where'd that come from, how that came to be and really what's the mission of, um, love the oceans today. So I came out to Mozambique in 2013 for the first time on holiday. And um, when I was here, I saw my first shark killing. So humans killing sharks. Um, and I, the reason I went into marine biology, at this point I was second year marine biology at university. Um, but the reason I went into marine biology in the first place was because I was just obsessed with sharks. Like when I was a kid, I, I went to the London Aquarium for my eighth birthday and like fell in love with them and then, where everyone else was like writing boys' names on their diaries and I was drawing sharks <laughs> everywhere. Oh, I <laughs> so, love it. Um, uh, I was a weird child. Um, but um, that was just a species that every like everyone has their kind of animal that they kind of mm-hmm. grow an affinity towards. And sharks were just my thing that I really enjoyed reading about um, and watching documentaries on. So when I saw one being killed, obviously that was quite emotional. Um, and it's a whole, I knew about the shark fin trade and what that was, but I didn't, um obviously seeing something in real life and witnessing it is quite different to seeing it on tv so i wanted to understand well i spent about two days very angry with the fishermen that had killed the shark and then i realized that the fishermen were just trying to make a living and and be able to feed their families um and actually the reason that they were killing the shark was for the fins um for the shark fin trade in mozambique um for shark fin soup So then I wanted to work out how bad the fin trade was because, yeah, it was really sad to see that happening um, with that one shark. But if that's actually happening with multiple individuals on multiple days, like consistently through the year, then you've actually got a sustainability problem as well. Um, And sharks are apex predators. So removal of them in the ecosystem um, can mean that you get trophic cascades and all kinds of problems, oh. collapsing commercial fisheries, eventual, basically eventually starving a local community here because the fish is such an important protein source. So it also comes back to like the socioeconomic side of things. So I wanted to work out how bad the shark fin trade was. So then I came back the following year uh, with three research assistants, spent four months with the shark fishermen, um, learning about the fin trade um, and what was the driving force behind that. And then was writing up so I did an integrated master's so it was like four years straight you don't have to reapply after your third year bachelor's um so I was into my fourth year at this point writing up my master's and I was getting the same results you would think in terms of 
sustainability, i.e. it's not. Um, yeah. And, um, <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> and uh, I decided to found an organization to continue the research because I didn't have enough data to, to get my stats significant and publish a paper and lobby the government. So I needed more data. And the only way I could think to do that was to build a team of volunteers because um, I couldn't financially fund it myself or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I founded the organization initially just for the shark fisheries, but then the more I kind of read into successful conservation strategies and long lasting change, because it's it's very well changing the law and saying, oh, well, you can't fish sharks anymore. But realistically, there's almost no law enforcement here because Mozambique doesn't have like enough human resources to have guards every like couple of kilometers on the beach. Yeah. Um, so people will just continue to do it illegally. So you need to get people to understand why it's bad um, and change kind of the whole mindset. Uh, so uh, yeah basically the more I read into successful conservation strategies the more I realized we needed a kind of a multi-pronged approach so we I changed the mission of from just banning the shark fin trade to establishment of a marine protected area as a whole nice and and with that in mind then your area of interest or not interest focus then expands to like you said beyond sharks it also includes the mantas the reefs it involves the fishermen it involves the whales everything and anything that is living in that area or passes through it. And so that's why as we we're talking about earlier, all the different cool things you're doing, you get to go after and basically research and look at so many different species and just dynamics in the ocean. Yeah, exactly. Um, so because we are proposing this legislation change of the marine protected area creation, um, we've also got to provide financial incentives for that to happen because realistically we're in a third world country. Um, and that's where the whales come in because the, well, the megafauna in general, so the manta rays, the whale sharks and the humpback whales, proving that we have so many here um, can really boost the tourism industry because by establishment establishing a marine protected area and being able to essentially guarantee a tourist a sighting of a whale during whale season then that's a very successful tourism industry and a sustainable industry as well um, that will make the government and the local community a lot of money so that's the kind of financial drive behind the MPA and, and that's kind of the idea is to transition the community away from unsustainable shark fishing to sustainable ecotourism um, that's obviously responsibly managed as well. Right. And so what do you see in the response so far um, of the local community and then the broader government structure to what you guys are proposing? So um, the local community are a dream. We've been really lucky. Um, so we work with two communities, Ginjata and Pandani. Um, we've worked with Coconut, which is further north um, a little bit, but uh, they're just geographically a bit further, so it's a bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. But Pandani and Ginjata each have a elder, which is like a mayor of the community. Um, and we work with each elder and then um, kind of like the hierarchy underneath that as well. So you have like chiefs and sub-chiefs and all of that kind of stuff, um, neighborhood chiefs. Um, so we work with each community very closely and the project's actually part community owned. And we were very lucky because one of the elders uh, yonks ago went to Kenya and had seen a similar uh, initiative happening in Kenya. Um, so when I kind of voiced this idea right back like six years ago and said like this is kind of what I'm thinking I don't really know how we should do it yet but is this something that you think might work or would want or need or anything like that and I didn't realize at the time because I was 21 but essentially I was doing a needs assessment yeah. <laughs> and um, Mario is the name of the elder he'd actually been to Kenya and so he'd 
seen this and was immediately was like yes 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 yes, yes let's do this this is going to be good like cool. absolutely um so things have just been very easy for us and I think transparency on both parts has made that happen um so I've always been very open and and well my whole team anytime we have community meetings it's always like okay this is the funding that we think we can get um this is how much things will cost and so it's always been very transparent and I think that always helps to build relationships um when it's always built very honestly yeah that's way cool and then how about like so you have like the the kind of the mayor of sorts in that area who's behind it and you're working with them I take that on down to like the local fisherman right who's maybe multi-generations of either shark finning or maybe something else illegal again not to criticize them that's just they're surviving you know yeah. how are they responding to sort of this hey look if we just bring people out to interact with these animals versus killing them you know we have this longer sustainable sort of economy are they getting that are they receptive yeah so um the shark fishermen some are actually not from this area which we've only kind of discovered in the last few years um so they're a bit more difficult to deal with because uh-huh. the elders have less influence over them okay, something I didn't really kind of consider before I had a meeting I think it was September um with Silver who's the other elder in Ginjata and um he I was asking if he'd noticed any kind of difference through our work uh with the shark fishing and the consumption of shark meat because shark meat's actually quite poisonous with the levels of mercury in it um mm. so, and that's something that we've kind of been um talking to the fishermen about so i was saying like have you noticed anything different in like the markets or just the way that people kind of interact with the shark fishermen or what's being said in the community and he was like oh yeah there's been a lot more social pressure um cool. applied to the shark fishermen to stop them fishing sharks as much which is really cool and something i didn't kind of count on the fishermen themselves uh the the non-shark fishermen are very receptive and even the shark fishermen uh, are pretty open the thing is is that they're not they just don't have the education around why shark fishing is bad right so it's not like they're like oh i want to go out and kill all the sharks um they don't like hate sharks or anything it's literally just a means to an end so the idea mm-hmm. of our strategy is if you can provide a reason uh and a way for people to um not fish sharks that's still financially like feasible and all the rest of it then they won't like there's no like big pool for sharks it's yeah. just, it's, it's literally just a means to an end when we return from a short break we hear about Francesca's work with local school kids to help them form their own connection with the ocean. Stay with us. What I love so much about Francesca's story today is her dedication to helping an emerging country, Mozambique, figure out how to best preserve and protect their wonderful ocean waters and the animals that live in them. While these waters may be thousands of miles away from most of us, the whales, sharks, mantas, and dolphins know no boundaries and need all the support protection that we can give them Imagine donating a mere $10 to Love the Oceans today and feeling good about helping to protect these species we're hearing about in Mozambique, giving them a better chance to thrive in the waters around a developing continent, and greatly increasing the chance that our own grandchildren will be able to swim with them in the future. So go to lovetheoceans.org and see the various ways you can contribute. With Earth Day 2020 happening this week, it makes good sense to get involved. Yeah, it's just like that's their job and they clock in and they clock out every day and that's just what they know. 
Yeah. And so you're trying to, like you said, educate them in a sense of what other opportunities are there for them based on the natural beauty, you know, wonder of the animals and the ocean that they have. And then tied to that too, is you put a lot of emphasis on like, you know, more of like the community outreach perspective of working with kids. And you have this really cool, the next generation, this really cool quote on your website that I'll read here. It's the spark, spark passion for marine life in the next generation. And I love that because it's such a key, a key element, I think, of long-term preservation and conservation of any aspect of the ocean is getting the kids of today interested and bought in emotionally so they'll do something, you know. So Talk about that that element of what you guys are doing with working with the kids local and local communities. Yeah, so we teach basic marine resource management and that's to 10 to 13 year olds in the local schools. That's kind of, well, it supplements the national curriculum and basically it's coral reefs, it's ocean trash, it's um, sustainable fishing, what ecotourism looks like. And the reason that we work with 10 to 13 year olds is most people leave school around the age of um, 13 in our area. So it's just our biggest audience as old as we can get um, because yeah. it's just not feasible to work with um, the older age group at the moment, like the 16 year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we do with that is we teach those lessons and the lessons can be anywhere between 60 to 120 kids. Um, so big bigger crowds um and um the most motivated kids we used to do it as like the we used to do sticker charts and the kids that got the most questions right got the got a free swimming lesson but then we realized that you're kind of penalizing the kids that aren't as clever or don't understand the subject as much so we changed it to kind of motivation and interaction instead so if they tried the question then they still get a sticker on the chart and they get a free swimming lesson on the weekends um, part of what we teach in like the theory and the lessons uh, in the schools is um, uh, sea safety. So what riptides are, how to get out of a riptide, all of that kind of stuff. And that's because we have a very strong riptide in our bay. Um, so there's been through 14 drownings in the last two years. Um, wow, that's a lot. Yeah, a lot, a lot. Um, And most of those, a couple of them have actually, like we had a tourist, I think, in December or something, um, and like an adult. Uh, So it's it's not like a small rip. It's pretty strong. Yeah. Um, And, uh, but a lot of the people that do get caught are um, youngsters, like eight to 13 year olds, really, like the age group that we teach. So we started teaching sea safety and none of the kids that have been in our classes over the last um, six years um, have been any of the people that have drowned which is really good because they're hopefully listening about how to get out of a rip but basically um, our kind of theory lessons then tie in with practical on the weekends and we teach free swimming lessons to four to 18 year olds um, and that we teach about 72 kids in an afternoon it's exhausting wow. oh, <laughs> um, I bet yeah that's so cool <laughs> we teach half an hour lessons and then we have classes of eight kids maximum per lesson and we have three lessons running at once so we rotate them around on a few different teachers um my pascal our community outreach manager and me are both um swimming instructors yeah and so basically the kind of idea behind the swimming and well basically because there's so many drownings and because there's riptide and there's just generally a fear of the ocean because you can imagine if like you didn't swim and none of your family swam and then anytime anyone did swim they died you're gonna just like be terrified of the ocean totally um and obviously they that like being that fear means that 
generally conservation marine conservation isn't something that people care about because they're just scared of the ocean so it's Mm. about trying to remove that fear and enable people to interact with the ocean safely that then uh, gives people the security to interact with the ocean and actually um, enjoy that interaction and um, kind of then grow that into stewardship so um we work with four to 18 year olds in the swimming lessons 10 to 13 year olds in our theory lessons and once the kids get to about 16 we have beginner intermediate and advanced classes they're about 16 when they get to advanced we offer them the opportunity to become what we call an ocean conservation champion and that's basically um where we sponsor them further qualifications so that can be diving uh surfing swimming Uh, generally marine themed the idea behind it being that um, it's job creation because with the establishment of the marine protected area um, the job creation will be in the marine space so in order to be a you know snorkel tour leader you need to be able to swim um, and you need experience in those areas so it's job creation which ties in with poverty alleviation which is really crucial to any conservation strategy when you're working with people because when you're poverty stricken you just don't have the financial luxury to be thinking about conservation you've got to eat what you can um so poverty alleviation is really important there and then also the ocean conservation champions um occs the occs then uh also become ambassadors in their local community so they run their own community conservation workshops because we also do big workshops with um the adults as well so they run their own and they develop their own materials and they spread their kind of own message about conservation. Um, and each person, family sizes are huge here. So Pascal, our community outreach manager, he's one of 20 children, um, wow. which isn't uncommon. Yeah, it's huge family sizes. He's got 700 cousins. I'm not exaggerating (laughs) at all. I'm not exaggerating. Um, His family parties are gigantic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so like when he started talking about it with his family uh, and they all kind of started fishing more sustainably and thinking about what they were doing a bit more, Mm -hmm. that's having a massive impact. And that's just through like having chats with Pascal. So actually investing in these youngsters who run their own um workshops is first of all it's culturally integrated it's mozambicans teaching mozambicans um which is really important uh, and crucial to long-term change um and also it's coming yeah it's spreading the word reaching their own families their own communities um and reaching a wider audience as well Wow. I got to tell you, Francesca, I really admire all the effort and everything you guys are doing and you specifically. I mean, it sounds like you're making, you've made, and I guess it's not overnight. You've been out there for what, five-ish years now, but a massive impact, you know, out there. We've been, we've been really lucky. Well, I've been really lucky. I have an amazing team. Andrea Biden's our executive director. She came on board um, just after a year of um, LTO existing. So she's been on board very uh, from very very early on and then we've got a few staff members that come back um every year seasonally and hannah our social media girl she works throughout the year for free um helping out with things and planning campaigns and stuff um so we're very lucky we've got a dedicated group of individuals who care a lot about what we do and we do we do find that like once people can't kind of come out it's one thing like learning about it on social media but if you come out and like see it um and I think that's why like Hannah and Andrea and I care so much about this um 
when you come out you meet the people you know you know who you're working with like we're looking to launch a period poverty campaign in the next um two years and the kind of motivation there is that we literally know the girls that we're going to be working with and that we can create more of a different future for if they want it mm-hmm. um, and possible career paths and things that didn't exist before um, so yeah. it's slightly different when it's kind of almost personal because you know the people um, that you're having a direct effect on and like yeah. um, you know kind of the people that you want to help shape the future for oh yeah and that it gives you that adds energy and passion to what you're doing which you have so much of anyway but when you have the personal connection with that like you said those women those young girls that you're going to be spending time with when you know them you've seen them for the last few years growing up it's like that i'm guessing gives you even more kind of excitement and energy to put into your time with them exactly exactly we've got um chelsea who's this adorable seven-year-old um, she's absolutely tiny. She should. She. Um, <laughs> I thought she was five until last year, and she was like, "No, I'm seven. And I was like, "Oh, my bad." <laughs> she's always been very small for age. Um, she can fit on my. She sits on my lap uh, when I drive to swimming lessons. Um, oh, cool. And she fits between me and the steering wheel, so she's absolutely minute. <laughs> um, but uh, she's like the sweetest kid ever, and she wants to be a teacher when she's older. Um, and she really likes fish and she, she likes, she literally says, I like fish. Um, and, oh, yeah. um, she's just adorable. And it's like kids like that, that I, I really want to, yeah, just give them more options, um, in their future if they want them. Like, um, yeah, here really, especially for women, there's not many options, um, in terms of career paths, their typical kind of life is, um, you hit like you hit the age that you have your period you get married um so marriage legally in the country is 18 and over but um as pascal says there's what is the law and then there's what is done and um (laughs) two different things (laughs) yeah so kind of average age for a girl to marry here is 14 15 um yeah very scary and very different to what kind of I grew up with but then it's also important to not kind of impose your own opinions on other people and you have to make sure that it's actually wanted so we're still doing a lot of ground research as well on that yeah yeah for sure so when I kind of take a a step back like the 10,000 foot view of what you're doing with love the oceans it's basically like this model right you kind of just each you take these steps as you just make your own path and the model you've kind of created, I'd kind of characterize it. It's like, look, you're really focusing on understanding what's going on in the ocean, being it to be able to inform protection of it. You tie that back to the community, the socioeconomic part, you tie the people in. So if you kind of look at that as one giant sort of model, do you see other groups just like you and other places of the world doing that. Cause what I'm trying to, what I'm kind of going through my mind, and again, I'm not an expert, but I've talked to enough people and this, this kind of topical information this is interesting to me, but it seems like people are like, we're going to do a marine reserve right here. Ocean, ocean, ocean kind of conservation, conservation. And then there's somebody who's like, Hey, we're going to do ecotourism over here. And I don't, are you seeing this kind of the, the coupling of both sides of that as the bigger picture model that people are trying to, start in other third world countries like this um i'm not sure uh there's a i would say a handful that i'm aware of maybe even less than a handful of organizations that are doing as holistic as we are um to my knowledge a lot of organizations either focus on one or the other 
So they yeah. either focus on like the humans because it's a lot. Like it's it is a lot of work. Um, right. And trying to explain what Love the Oceans does in like five minutes when someone's like, "Oh, what's your job?" Um, oh yeah. It's really difficult. Um, yeah, it's more like a twenty-minute conversation. <laughs> There's yeah. so much. <laughs> um, so I do understand why people just don't have the capacity to be doing everything. Um, and we like for us, it's it's built up over time. We didn't we couldn't do it all just to begin with. Um, so it's been kind of a slow a slow build. Um, but I only know of like I mean I'm probably wrong. I'm sure there's other organisations out there that are doing um, as holistic stuff. But we've kind of we pride ourselves on being holistic um, and trying to think of every angle um and it and essentially the way that our strategy has been born is just thinking through the limitations that can stand in people's way to live more sustainably um so it's yeah. one thing saying like oh you should spearfish instead of gillnet but gillnetting which is really unsustainable is one of the easier methods of fishing because you can go out on a boat and drop the net off the side of the boat so it doesn't require you going in the water so you don't have to swim so a lot of the gillnetters don't swim so if you want them to switch over to spearfishing, which you definitely have to be able to swim for, you then have to provide <laughs> swimming lessons. Sure. Um, so it's all about like thinking, it's all very well saying like, oh, this, this, this is more sustainable. This should be the way that things are done. You've got to think about how feasible that is in the local area and what barriers can stand in people's way. Because we yeah. work in a community that's extremely poverty stricken. Average wage is like, I think it's 200 and... 50 met a day at the moment which is uh three dollars a day oh wow, um, wow. and even then there's a 70 percent unemployment rate so most people don't even earn Jeez. that and most people are just subsistence fishing or farming um so there's no money like there's not a financial safety net for anyone so you can't just say oh you have to live this way you've got to provide financial a financially feasible way to live more sustainably yeah and that's one thing that i I've noticed myself as I, I call it my education around the shark finning and sort of more overly consumptive fishing practices like that. And social media is, it's definitely a double-edged sword. I say this a lot. And in this case, it's like, look, I'll see something on Instagram with, it's a boatload of sharks with no fins or a bunch, a boatload of, of fins or a shark drifting aimlessly with no fins on it. And you get, you immediately get all boiled up, you know? And yeah. then typically it's like the message behind that is like, we got to stop this. And it's like all negative, but what is underneath is what we're not doing is is really addressing the issue, the root issue behind it is, as you said, the people who go out and shark fin, for example, or gillnet or do, you know, super overly consumptive things, they're not evil people. They don't wake up and go, I'm going to go wipe out the sharks today. All right. It's like, they're just trying to make a freaking living. And until yeah. we, you know, in the first world can help those in the third world or, you know, however it shakes out to figure out how they can replace that. It's not going to change. So I just get a little, now that I kind of get that before I was like, I would just get so boiled. Oh, I can't believe people would shark fin. But like, no, no, these guys make a buck a day and they send the money back to Thailand with their families or whatever their situation is. And it's just heavy. You got to help. We got to help them figure it out versus just like beat them down or, you know, just throw images on social media and just a shock factor behind it all you know exactly like it admittedly every time you ask a fisherman how much he makes from a fin here the answer is different but even the maximum amount that they've said is still i think it equated to like 30 pounds per kg or something 
um, so Jeez. like $30 or whatever per kg. Um, and then you can get 5 kg from a shark. So you're looking at like, I don't know, um, 100 or so, maybe more um, per shark, I think it was. Um, yeah. Um, and even that is nothing in comparison to what those fins sell for in the Hong Kong market. So even though it's a lot of money for Mozambicans, it's actually still tuppence. Like it's, yeah. it's nothing in comparison to what that fin will be sold on for. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Jeez. Uh, and then finally, Francesca, so that's all. I love all. I could talk that with you for, for <laughs> hours and hours. And uh, I just really admire all the effort you put in there. And it just feels so cool. And I have a couple ideas I want to share with you afterwards. But you also, again, you, you, you have this really rich, really cool ocean life. And another aspect of it is you're not just out doing research, working with communities, running this awesome NGO. You're also like, you're behind the camera and you have a lot of really awesome underwater photography and land-based photography as well. So talk about sort of how that fits into your overall just, you know, approach to being in the water. Um, uh, thanks. <laughs> That's really nice. <laughs> um, um, well, so it all kind of started when I needed to create content for the NGO. Um, and we couldn't afford anyone to do it for us. Um, <laughs> Necessity. So was, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it was a um, kind of creating as much as content as I could. And I didn't really know anything about like social media when, when I started. I've never, I'm, <laughs> I still hate it, but we, we have to do it um, to right. maintain profile. <laughs> the same way. Um, and uh, now I know a lot more about it. And I'm a completely different photographer than I was five or six years ago um thankfully I was terrible when I started um I hadn't really grown up uh doing photography or anything like that um and I started shooting when I was in Mozambique and then uh I did an internship here uh and then um yeah I just kind of started when was it I think I took a couple of holidays with an ex-boyfriend where I'd like um offer I'd go to like the local dive store of wherever we were so I think I did that in Mexico and say like can we get some discounted dives in exchange if I take some photos and then use that to kind of build up my portfolio um and just kind of take photos whenever I could and because I live here uh, in Mozambique um most of the year I can obviously take my camera on weekends when we're not doing research and and try and document as much as um I can and that's important for the organization and personally my portfolio too helps as well and then I started writing to companies and saying, like, oh, would you be interested in hiring me for a short amount of time to do some shoots? And, yeah, I kind of built it from there. So now I use my Januaries to um, go off and shoot somewhere in the world that I want to go to um, because my friends are always like, oh, you're always off traveling. And I'm not. I'm always in Mozambique. And there's a big difference between traveling, which is like <laughs> yeah. going a lot of different places and just going one other place. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, as much as I love um, Mozambique, it's nice to go off every January and kind of pick a country and go, I've never been there. I want to go there. So I just got back from, well, I say just got back, but this January, I was in Indonesia, which was amazing in Raja Ampat, um, shooting for a liverboard there. Um, and that was really incredible. I, I probably haven't seen any corals like that before. Oh, cool. I've, I was, I shot the um, north out Great Barrier Reef, out of Great Barrier Reef, um, and Red Sea in Egypt. And both of those obviously have pretty astounding corals as well. 
Um, but Raja Ampat's just like layers and layers of coral. It's so beautiful. I mean, it's in the coral triangle. So obviously I knew it was going to be pretty stunning. And it's been on my list for ever because every oh. marine biologist ever will say, oh, yeah, I want to go to Raja Ampat. Um, but uh, yeah, it was nice to finally get out there and um, see all of that and shoot it as well. And um, I was filming as well, which I've never done before. <laughs> But nice. the Liverboard uh, really wanted some video and asked me if I could try. Um, so I tried. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it was, I always kind of learned on the job. I enjoy that though. I really enjoy expanding skill sets and learning new stuff. So um, yeah, I learned how to do underwater videography. Uh, and I also learned that my equipment is definitely subpar for videography <laughs> um, i'm gonna need to upgrade my rig to be able to create anything that's really great um but at least i now know how to do it um if i need to again and i also know yeah. what equipment i need to get <laughs> right right well it looks pretty good to me just looking at instagram and your websites and everything and and i'll put links to definitely uh both websites your personal photography website and you know people can order prints and stuff there's really cool stuff and then also love the oceans of course for sure as yeah, well thanks. for people to check out yeah 100 uh well francesca this has been awesome and uh again i could sit and talk freaking for a couple hours with you um the, <laughs> a lot of this you know like the humpback whales for one are near and dear to me being in my area also here in the pacific and i had a pretty rad interaction with one like two weeks ago so like yeah. i just love hearing about people and what you're doing with them and everything and just really admire the energy and devotion passion everything above you put into what you're doing uh in mozambique in your area uh so thank you for that thanks thanks for having me yeah for sure it's been great chatting with you and i put all these links uh to in the show notes for folks to check out to get more information and see how they can help donate uh support volunteer do all kinds of stuff to help you guys out thanks so much Hey everybody, thanks for listening to another podcast episode. Can't do it without you. If you like what you heard, would really appreciate you sharing the podcast with people you know who might enjoy the stories that we hear and the guests we have on. And of course, even better, reduce plastic, do something good for the ocean and for each other. Thanks again. We'll catch you on the next episode.